0: If you haven't already, uh, find your way in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Uh, Again, if uh, you're new to making your way around the Bible, just go all the way to the back. The last book of the Bible is Revelation, uh, and uh, we're in chapter 2. The large numbers that are printed in your Bibles are the chapters. The small superscript numbers are the verses. We're in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Tolerance is a... hot word has been for a while in our culture. The word itself, the concept itself, is is something like or communicates something like the maximum level of deviation from the norm before things start to break or change entirely. Car engines have mechanical tolerances. Our bodies have different tolerances to physical or to prescription medications. As parents, we have varying levels of tolerance for the behavior of our children in our homes. All these tolerances are in place to keep systems running at their best. A system that is no holds barred, everything goes, is ultimately a system that will fall apart in short order. Even in the cultural context of the last 25 years or so in America, the cultural shift toward greater tolerance for what we in the past would have considered morally questionable behaviors, even that system has its limits. If you oppose total libertarian permissiveness, you will find it difficult to be tolerated by the culture of tolerance. Now, some toleration is good. We, we need tolerance for a peaceful society. As parents, we need to tolerate some aberrant behavior to a certain degree by our children to help them to learn to develop independence and how to grow into being their own person. We need tolerance for the sake of protecting the religious conscience of every individual. We need to be able to tolerate people who don't believe like we do for the sake of protecting their conscience. But when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, whom his word calls the pillar and the buttress of truth, there are some things that Christ will not tolerate. Here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18-29, through 29, Jesus speaks now to the church at Thyatira. Which is a hard word to say, and Jeremiah nailed it. Jesus speaks to the church at Thyatira for and he commends it for its growing faithfulness and fruitfulness, and he encourages the church there to continue in all of the things, the good things that they have been doing. At the same time, he condemns the church for its permissive attitude of tolerance toward false teachers among them, warning those false teachers of their impending demise and encouraging. The church at Thyatira to uh, uh, persevere in faithfulness. The main idea of Jesus's word to the church at Thyatira is this, beware tolerance. Not the, bad, not the good kind, not the kind that we need, but beware tolerance of the bad sort that we'll look at in just a moment. Seeing this in the text, knowing that Jesus loves the truthfulness of his people's public witness, we must strive, as this church today, to know His Word and to know one another well enough to speak the truth and love to one another for the sake of our public witness. So let's look at the text this morning, beginning in verses 18 and 19. We see Jesus and the Thyatirans. Thyatirans? Theatrians? The, I don't know. There's too many vowels, not enough consonants. They all run together. Jesus and the church at Thyatira. As Jesus speaks to the church in that city, uh, he reveals a few things about himself. First of all, Jesus is the Son of God with eyes like a flaming fire and feet like burnished bronze and he is speaking to this church at Thyatira. Now Thyatira itself was a city situated about 35 miles inland from Pergamum, about eastward and, uh, and inland from the city of Pergamum that we looked at last week. Thyatira was not a significant city in Asia Minor, except as an occasional military outpost throughout history. If uh, we could consider Ephesus, the first of the cities that Jesus speaks to, as something like San Francisco, major port city, lots of traffic through there, cultural center. And if we could look at Pergamum being the, the capital of Asia Minor as being something like Washington, D.C., well, then Thyatira was in what we would call flyover country. Thyatira sat in, in like Sioux City, Iowa kind of area, right? It's the kind of city that people don't really take uh, much, pay much attention to, don't really take a whole lot of time to stop in. It might be a stop-through on your way to a more important place. This is, the, this is the, the city of Thyatira and the church that was there too. Outside of Revelation chapter 2, Thyatira is hardly mentioned at all in anywhere of Scripture, except for in Acts chapter uh, 16 or so, where there in the city of Philippi, some several miles away from Thyatira, Paul, the apostle, meets a woman from Thyatira. Her name is Lydia. She's a seller of purple cloth, and she has made her home or set up business in Philippi. She's from Thyatira, but meets Jesus through Paul's ministry there in Philippi and is converted. This is about 50 years prior to Jesus' speaking to the church here in Revelation. So, over the course of 50 years of earliest church history, we only hear of Thyatira a couple times. Thyatira might be a lot like Albuquerque in many ways in relation to its significance. It just wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't significant. And so, to this church, Jesus, the Son of God, with eyes like a flaming fire, feet like burnished bronze, speaks. There are three things that we need to notice about Jesus here. First of all, he relates to them. He reminds them that he is the son of God, which is to say he is the eternal and uncreated but incarnate God in human flesh, only begotten son of God, the father as the son of God. Jesus has all the authority of the father to speak to his church, to commend their good deeds and to give consequences for their disobedience. He is the one who has eyes like flaming fire. This is, again is a callback to Revelation 1 verse 14 when John describes the appearance of the risen Son of Man before Him. His eyes like flaming fire communicate that He sees everything and everyone. Even small churches in insignificant cities. To the small church in the insignificant city in Thyatira, Jesus with eyes like a flaming fire says, I see you. Into a small church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Jesus says, I see you. He's the one who has feet like burnished bronze. Again, drawing back to that image from Revelation 1. These feet like uh, a burnished bronze are an image of his strength and the overpowering force of his kingdom. Think back to Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said, Uh, On the confession of Peter that that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus would build his church and the gates of hell would not overcome it. There is nothing that can stand against the force of Jesus' advancing kingdom. His feet like burnished bronze trample every enemy underneath them. And this is the one who speaks to the little church at Thyatira. And just as Jesus does with every church that he speaks to in Revelation, he tells the church at Thyatira what he knows about them. To the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, I know all your works. I know everything you do. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus said, I know your tribulation. To the church at Pergamum, Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. To the church at Thyatira, he repeats what he said to the church at Ephesus. I know all your works. I know everything that you do specifically though jesus knows four categories if you will of their works i know your works verse 19 your love and faith and service and your patient endurance i know these four things about you it seems that everything about this church at thyatira is going well they've got love according to first corinthians 13 down love is patient love is kind does not envy does not boast is not proud is not rude Church of Thyatira, nailing it. They're they're absolutely killing it when it comes to the kind of faith that we have to place in Jesus. According to like Ephesians 1 and 2, just total dependence upon Christ. When it comes to the service of the body and the ministry associated with it, the Thyatirans are out deaconing the deacons from Acts 6. And as goes endurance, this church is running the race set before them with joy in an exemplary fashion. I know all the things you do. Your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And what's more, Jesus says, your latter works exceed the first. What does that mean? It means that they're not only excelling in these aspects of life in Christ, they are growing in their excellence in these things. They have more love today than they did when they started. They have more faith today than they did when they started They're serving better today than when they first came to Christ. Their endurance today is more steadfast than it was the first day that they came to follow Jesus. Your latter works are better than the first. You just keep growing as my people. This insignificant church in this flyover town of Thyatira is noticed by Jesus, is seen by Jesus He sees the fruit of their salvation displayed in ever more beautiful ways among them. And he says to this insignificant church in this insignificant town, I see you, dear church. Well done. Understand this before we go further. The fruit of our lives and the fruit of our church matters to Jesus. The outcome of our life the, the, the works of our church, the fruit of who we are as followers of Jesus, matters to Jesus. Now listen, we're not the biggest church in Albuquerque. Newsflash. <laughs> praise God, there are churches that are bigger than us. And praise God, there are churches that are smaller than us. And praise God, there are a lot of churches that are about our size. Not just in, in Albuquerque, but around New Mexico and around the United States. In fact, our church is about normal size when it comes to, to churches in the United States. I recently saw a statistic. If you took all of the megachurch pastors throughout uh, the United States, you could, you could fit them all onto one Boeing 737. You could get them all, all onto one Southwest flight. But if you were to take all of the pastors of normative-sized churches like ours, you would have to take the Georgia Dome to, to seat them all. Right, So the, there, are, there are many more average-sized churches like ours. Relatively, can I put it this way, insignificant churches like ours than there are megachurches in the world today. The hope of what Jesus says to this insignificant church in Thyatira is that not only does Jesus see this insignificant church in Thyatira, this small church in a small town that nobody really cared about, but he sees us too. He sees us too. And the fruit of our lives, what Jesus sees in us, what what we produce, the fruit of the gospel that comes out of us, matters to Jesus. He cares what comes out of every church that bears his name. I think about the great consequence that it relatively insignificant things have on large systems. Uh, and as I was thinking about this week, I was, just, I was reminded of, um, there was one day I was out on a run several years ago, and along the sidewalk, uh, as, I was, as I was running, if you can call it that, Uh, something caught my eye. It was an insect, a dead one. And for whatever reason, I stopped to look at it. And it was just a honeybee laying there dead on the sidewalk. I don't know how many people drove past it, probably a lot, because honeybees are hard to see, especially if you're driving. I don't know how many people walked past it or ran past it or whatever. But for whatever reason, my, my eye was drawn to that honeybee that day laying dead on the sidewalk. And I thought, that's something. Millions, maybe billions of honeybees die every day Totally unnoticed by most people. Yet, if all of the honeybees in all of the world immediately like just ceased to exist, not only will we not have honey on shelves in our grocery stores, but half of our plants would not grow. The the rosemary bushes in our front yard would not, not be pollinated nearly as well as they are or as beautiful and fragrant as they are. The whole world is made sweeter by the existence of the humble honeybee. And so also is the whole world meant to be sweeter in in far better ways by the existence of relatively insignificant, overlooked Christians in churches doing the work that Christ has given them to do, being fruitful with all that he's given to him. The fruit of our lives and the fruit of our church, big or small, great or meager, matters to Jesus. Jesus speaks to this little town, this little church in this little town, and he commends them for the good things, for the good fruit, for the way that they're making their world sweeter through the fruit of the gospel. But then he turns very quickly in verses 20 through 23 to speak to this little church in this little town that most people probably didn't care about, about the danger of permissive tolerance. For all that Jesus is glad for at the church in Thyatira, he has this against them. He says that they tolerate a false teacher, who is leading people astray to practice idolatry, the same kind of idolatry that we've seen in, in other churches that Jesus has spoken directly to? Jesus nicknames this prophetess Jezebel. It's not her real name, it's a nickname. And that nickname Jezebel is meant to remind us of the first Jezebel, that Old Testament uh, character, the wife of the King Ahab. King uh, Ahab was king of the northern kingdom of Israel after uh, the nation had split following King Solomon's death. The first Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, Ethbaal. The Sidonians were a pagan Baal-worshipping people. And as soon as Ahab married Jezebel, this pagan woman from a pagan family in a pagan land, 1 Kings 16.31 says that Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. This king of Israel, this king of God's people, went and served a false god in a temple to that false god. But it gets worse. 1 Kings 21 verses 25 through 26 tell us that not only did King Ahab start serving Baal when he married Jezebel, but he never stopped. Listen to the description of Ahab's legacy. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So calling this false teacher at the church at Thyatira Jezebel is to say that she is acting wickedly in enticing God's people to worship false gods. In in seducing people into worshiping idols. Just like Ahab's queen did. The church's problem at Thyatira is that for all of their growth in love, for all of their abundance in faith and service and patient endurance, for all of their growth as followers of Jesus, they have permitted this teacher of idolatry to exist among their assembly and to continue in her efforts to lead people astray. Every week, week by week, as the church is assembling together, she's doing her thing, teaching people these these strange things and leading people astray. And the church at Thyatira is like... Okay. No big deal. Just live and let live. Jesus has that against them. This is not to their favor. Jesus does not commend them for living and letting live. He condemns them for tolerating false teaching among his assembly. Now, there are several things about this false teacher, this so-called Jezebel in Thyatira, that help us to to know what to look for when it comes to spotting false teachers. Now, this is not like your discernment podcast, discernment blog, How to Find All False Teachers Everywhere segment of the sermon, but all the same, here's some helpful things to, to be on the lookout for. Spotting false teachers starts with recognizing uh, the strange authority, perhaps, that they bring with them. This Jezebel, Jesus has said, calls herself a prophet or a prophetess. Now, Prophecy, we know, is a gift of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament to believers, to to speak a word from God to His church. But generally, those who have the gift of prophecy don't go about announcing themselves as such. Usually, when we see people prophesying in the church in the New Testament, exercising that gift of the Spirit that the Lord had given them, they're not just walking into any random church assembly and saying, Hey, y'all, I'm a prophet. I've got a word from the Lord. Listen up. Usually these are, almost in every case, these are people who are known by the church, who have relationships with the church, and every single time what they are saying from the Lord comports perfectly with his word and his will for his people. This Jezebel comes not with godly authority, but with strange authority. She also brings strange teaching. It appears that this Jezebel has been teaching the people something new, something deeper, if we can put it that way could be that this uh, Jezebel was there in the church uh, and, and perhaps saying to the Christians, hey, listen, um, you guys are doing uh, well enough here. It's it's good that you uh, are trusting this Jesus and that you're spiritual people. And I am too. I love this Jesus also. But let me tell you the things that you don't know about him. Uh, your, your understanding of the universe, your understanding of how God works in the universe goes far deeper than what you've been taught so far. And, and I, being a prophetess, I know what to teach you that you don't know yet. And and here's what you need to know. The stuff that our bodies are made of, the, the, the matter that composes our physical world, doesn't really matter. It's just physical stuff. What's, what really matters is the spiritual. So what you do with your body... To, it doesn't matter. There, there's no real consequence to it. You can do whatever you want with your body knowing that it's your soul that you have to keep pure. So if you want to go and, and, and worship with your fellow bricklayers or your fellow masons at their uh, ceremony to, to Zeus and their worship of Zeus and you want to offer sacrifices to Zeus while in your heart you know, believing that he's really not real, you can do that. It's fine because what is matter doesn't matter. These deep things of God, perhaps, that this Jezebel thought she was teaching are revealed by Jesus to be what they really are. Not deep things of God at all, but deep things of Satan. Deep secrets of Satan. The things that she teaches, these strange teachings contrary to the gospel, are not godly. They're satanic. False teachers may advertise a strange authority. They often, always bring strange teaching. And usually that strange authority and that strange teaching leads to the advocation of strange living. The result of the teaching of this Jezebel in Thyatira was that many people in the church, many Christians, followers of Jesus, who, by the way, remember, were excelling in love and faith and service and endurance. Many of these in the church began taking part in the idolatrous practices of the culture. Uh, The idolatrous practice of the culture are are, are summarized in those those terms, eating food, sacrificed to idols, and practicing sexual immorality. They were participating in the worship feasts at temples to Roman gods, maybe even taking part in some of the licentious sexual practices that go along with that worship. These are things that this Jezebel was telling them they could do and encouraging them to do which is clearly contrary to the instruction that God had given through his servants to the church. About 50 years before, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13 He said, Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is, don't associate with anyone who calls himself a follower of Christ, a Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a, ro- a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside, so purge the evil person from among you. This false teacher comes with strange authority, strange teaching, strange living, and is leading many in the, in, in the church at Thyatira to go astray. And so Jesus speaks in unequivocal terms about what her punishment, what the consequences for her disobedience and her leading the people of God astray will be. Her punishment by the one who has feet like burnished bronze is ultimately her doom. Jesus says, I'll throw her on a sickbed, which is to say, I'll throw her on a, on a hospital stretcher. I'll, I will put her in hospice, so to speak, I will end her life and her false ministry. Along with her also go everyone who unrepentantly goes along with her false teaching and advocates the same sort of stuff that she's advocating. All of her suitors, all of those who commit sexual immorality with her, and also their children, Jesus says. Now, a lot of this very harsh-seeming, stark punishment that Jesus promises to bring upon this false prophet, we may think... That Jesus is somehow unmerciful. The one with feet like burnished bronze. Like, man, that's just kind of, it's kind of rude to just step all over people, Jesus. But remember what Jesus said in verse 22. Behold, I'll throw her on to, excuse me, verse 21. He says, I, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus is not unmerciful in giving this condemnation of this false teacher he has already been merciful to her i gave her time to repent which by the way indicates that this jezebel is not an outsider coming into the church with false teaching but that she was an insider who developed false teaching and started leading people astray from within I gave her time to repent week after week in the assembly of my church, hearing the gospel. She had opportunity to turn from her false teaching, and she didn't, and she still refuses to. She is literally unwilling to repent. There is good news, though, as verse 22 states. I'll throw her on a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. There's some good news there in that last clause, unless they repent of their works. The good news is anyone who sees their sin, anyone who recognizes their open rebellion against God and, and and perhaps their false teaching in contradiction to the gospel, anyone who recognizes the sin of their hearts and their own personal rebellious stance against God and turns from it will not receive this punishment if they repent. The punishment does not come. That's a wonderful word of hope. Don't miss it. Jesus also, he doesn't punish unmercifully, but he also doesn't punish unpurposefully. Say that a different way. Jesus punishes with a purpose. There's a reason for what he's doing. And it's not just to take out his wrath against this false teacher. His purpose for judgment comes to us in verse 23. He says, I will strike her children dead or I will kill them with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus, who has eyes like a flaming fire, sees his church in everything that they do for the good and for the evil. And Jesus punishes those who are unrepentantly teaching false doctrine in his church so that all of the rest of the world will know that he has eyes like a flaming fire and he searches the hearts and the minds of every person. It is a joy on the one hand to know that Jesus sees his faithful church in every large and in every small town. But his judgment upon the unrepentant church in the tiny town, the insignificant town like Thyatira, stands as a warning to every church everywhere that Jesus sees his church everywhere. And that he will protect his gospel and his name in every church everywhere. If Jesus cares enough about his reputation to protect it in the insignificant church, how much more will he protect it in a church that has grand cultural significance? There is no church too large that Jesus will not remove their lampstand for permissive tolerance. And there's no church too small whose rampant unrepentance he will overlook. Jesus commends the church for their growth in what it means to be a christian but he condemns the church for their permissive tolerance of false teaching because it muddies his name in the world there's an encouragement here to the church to christians today in light of jesus's condemnation his warning against false teaching and it is this that as the church of jesus christ today we must combat permissive tolerance in our church, but we don't combat permissive tolerance of false teaching with intolerance, right? We, we don't combat false teaching in, in in equal and opposite sort of uh, movements of intolerance, but we combat permissive intolerance with true love. In two ways. First of all, we work against a spirit of permissive tolerance of false teaching in the church by by first of all loving the true gospel by loving the true gospel, by valuing the message of hope and salvation that God delivers to his people in scripture. May I remind us of this gospel one more time? Okay, I will anyway. Thank you, brother. (laughs) These are not all rhetorical questions and you are encouraged to participate. Listen, If we're going to love the true gospel, we need to know the true gospel. And we try to repeat it every single week. And I pray that it's being repeated in your Bible study groups and in your grow groups week by week on a regular basis that the gospel is pervading our homes and the hearts of our children. But let's not forget what it is. The gospel is the news of God's redemption of of people that he has made in his image for perfect fellowship with him but who have rebelled against His authority in their lives. It started with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. God created them without sin and gave them only one command, that they might enjoy perfect fellowship with Him, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was the one thing? So the one command that God gave them to do, in relatively short order, they totally disobey through the deceitful temptation of Satan, And through the desire in their own hearts to be like God... The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, eat from the fruit of that tree. And in that moment, in that act of disobedience, they become sinners and sin enters the world. And not only is their fellowship with God broken by the disobedience of his one command, but now all of the created order is now subject to futility. The the whole cosmos is yearning for redemption and rescue and deliverance. Now, because all of us are children of Adam, we all bear in us this spiritual genetic defect, if I can put it this way. We're all born sinners. We're all born with a, a disposition to sin that as soon as we know how to rebel against God, we will. And if any of you aren't sure of that, have children. It's obvious. It's just all over us. We rebel against authority all the time. And it's not just a part of growing up and learning to be independent. It's part of the fruit of sin in our lives that we recognize authority and we hate it. And we apply that hate for authority not just to our parents and to police and to elected officials. We apply it most highly against God. And we tell the holy, uncreated, eternal, creator of all things, I can do better without you. The wages of that sin, the result of that sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. That is, that is spiritual separation from God, not just in this life, but also even after we die and for eternity. Now God is just to punish sin. If he doesn't punish sin, he's not a just God, and he's not a good God worthy of our worship. But at the same time, God is a merciful God and a gracious God who delights in giving people what they don't deserve at his own expense and one thing that we all don't deserve most or most least deserve but all need is the fellowship with him that we were created to have and god provides a way for that fellowship with him that right relationship with him that the the bible word is justification to be in right standing with god god gives us that as a free gift of his grace but it did not cost him nothing it's free to us but it comes at the cost of his son Jesus, the son of God, was born of a virgin woman, not of natural means. So he is not born with the same stain of sin, the same genetic defect of sin that all of us are born with. So he is born outside of sin and he maintains his sinlessness through his entire life, never once rebelling against God's authority over him. And Jesus takes his sinless life And offers it as a sacrifice on a cross where he was unjustly crucified for sins and crimes he did not commit. And as he hangs there on the cross, Scripture tells us that God looks on him as a sacrifice, the only sacrifice for all of our rebellion against God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, speaking about Christ, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus puts sin to death. He pays for sin on the cross. And he not only dies for sins, but he is buried. And on the third day, he is raised again from the dead by the authority of his own power, demonstrating his, his own victory over sin and death for all time. There's nothing that can stop Jesus from giving life to all that he chooses to. And do you know who he chooses to give life to? Everyone who trusts in him. Not everyone who proves themselves worthy. Not everyone who tries hard enough. Not everyone who does better. But every single person who simply recognizes, I am a rebel to the king of the universe. And I need saving. And my savior is Jesus. My life is his. My trust is is all in him. God's word says we are saved from sin by grace, which is an undeserved favor. The undeserved favor of God. We're saved by grace through faith, that is simply by placing depend, your, your total trust and all of your dependence in all things in Christ Jesus and him only. Friends, this is the gospel. You can be right with God. You can be restored to fellowship with God, not by trying harder and doing better and making more right choices, but by recognizing that in your own power, you made all the wrong choices. And with the help of God, placing your faith in Jesus, who died for your sins, was raised again to make you right with God. Friends, this is the gospel. The gospel of salvation is open and there's an invitation there to everyone who hears it and believes it to be saved, to to trust Jesus that way and be reconciled to God, to be redeemed, to be rescued. Friend, do you need to respond to that gospel today? Do you need to believe Christ today? Do you need to be saved today, made right with God? You've heard the gospel. Do it. You've heard how God has provided for your salvation. Believe Christ Trust Him. In order to combat permissive tolerance in the church of false teaching with true love, we have to first love the true gospel. That message of God's reconciliation to Himself of sinners through Jesus Christ has to make its way into our hearts so that we can talk about it without stumbling over our words. We need to love it like we love Grandma's chocolate chip cookie recipe. That we can just throw together by memory. How many of us can throw together a cookie recipe by memory? We don't even have to pull the card out anymore, but can't remember the gospel. We must love the true gospel. But then, second, we have to develop a love for the church, a love for other believers that can bear the weight of truth. How do we work against permissive tolerance of false teaching in the church? by loving the gospel and by loving each other enough and having deep enough relationships that we can bear the weight of truth when we have to point out difficult things in each other's lives. Tolerance of bad teaching has, I believe, an inverse relationship to the depth and authenticity of our love for one another. That is to say, the more shallow our relationships are, The the less that we trust one another with difficult things in our lives, the less likely we are to point out those things, or the more likely we are to tolerate false teaching. Why? Because we're afraid to hurt someone's feelings. If you're afraid to hurt somebody's feelings and so you don't say a hard thing to them, I think that actually demonstrates a lack of a lack of depth of relationship with that person. I love my kids. I tell them hard stuff all the time. My wife loves me. She tells me hard stuff even more often. But she's not afraid to do it. And I'm not afraid to say hard things to my kids. Why? Because our relationships are deeper than our feelings. The more we really love one another, and by love one another, I I don't mean just being friendly and shaking hands in the foyer and asking how we like our coffee, but loving in the sense that we know the hard things about each other's lives, that, that we're willing to open up about our struggles, about our sins, about the things that hurt really deep down inside, uh, about the sin that plagues our hearts even still. When we're able to open up about those things without fear of being castigated or ostracized or, or to speak to the hard things, to speak to the sinful things that we see in other other people's lives without fear of, of, of breaking relationship with them, the more we're able to do that, actually the, the stronger our relationships are. So to really prevent this kind of permissive tolerance that we see at the church in Thyatira, this permissive tolerance of false teaching, of wrong teaching, our relationships in the church need to be deep enough to move us to really care when someone teaches or begins following wrong teaching. When someone in your Bible study class says, I'm so glad Jesus died on the cross so I can be healthy and wealthy and happy. (laughs) You need to care enough about the gospel and enough about that person's soul to say, let me remind you of what salvation really is. Likewise, our relationships need to be strong enough that we can speak out when we see things like this happening without fear that our relationships will crumble if we do. I think very often in in the church, we're really happy to have friends around. I should put friends in scare quotes because I don't know what kind of friends they are, but we like to be friendly with each other. And so we have this really kind of well-dressed bridge of relationship. It's all shiny and veneer, and it looks really pretty from a distance. But underneath that shiny veneer, it's, it's really all just popsicle sticks and toothpicks. And the slightest thing will cause the whole thing to crumble. Dear friends, give me an ugly stone and iron bridge of friendship over a shiny, pretty popsicle stick toothpick version any day. Because that's a bridge that can bear the weight of truth. And not in an unloving way, not in an intolerant way, in a way that says, oh, if you disagree with us, you have no place here. But in a way that says, friend, we're, we're, not, we're not agreeing on this most essential part of what Christ in his word says is true. We need to work toward that. Jesus tells the church at Thyatira, beware Tolerance. And there are principles for us to combat permissive tolerance with with true love present here. But let's look at how Jesus closes this letter to this church. He gives them a hard word about a problem there, but he doesn't leave them without encouragement. He does that sandwich thing again. Tells them a good thing, tells them a hard thing, gives them the meat of that message, but then he he gives them another encouraging word as he closes. He gives encouragement for the faithful in the last five, six verses of this text. In verse 24, Jesus speaks to those who have not gone astray. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To those who have not gone astray, to those who have not believed this Jezebel and her false teaching, to those who have not gone into league with her in idolatrous worship, Jesus says, keep it up. Press on in your growth, in love, in your faith, in your service, in your endurance. All I ask you to do, my dear children, is keep loving my gospel and keep loving one another enough to speak the truth. Keep it up. Press on. And then to the one who conquers. As as Jesus says in every letter that he does to the churches in Revelation, to the one who conquers, Jesus promises here two things. To one who conquers by holding fast to him, Jesus promises a share in the messianic kingdom. Verses 26 and 7, he says to the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over nations. He'll rule with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I think here Jesus is intentionally recalling Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, which say, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's the point? Well, Psalm 2... Being the second psalm in all of the Psalter is the first psalm that has all this sort of messianic expectation. This hope for a king who will rule in justice and goodness and holiness and righteousness for all time. And Jesus here is is saying in Revelation 2, 26 and 27, I am that king and that kingdom is mine. And everyone who belongs to me, who's a citizen of my kingdom, will have a share in it. Jesus, the Son of God, who has all authority from the Father, has all authority to share His rule, to give authority with those in whom He delights and who are faithful to Him. In the final consummation of His kingdom, in this universe made new, Jesus will give to those who have been faithful to Him the privilege to reign with Him. Indeed, we are already a kingdom of priests, as Revelation 1-6 tells us. A kingdom of priests in Christ, the King of kings. And he is pleased to share his rule, to share his authority with those who overcome by holding fast to him. To the one who conquers, Jesus promises a share in his messianic kingdom. But better still, to the one who conquers by holding fast to Jesus in the face of false teaching, he promises to give himself. Jesus says, and I will give him the morning star." You know who he's talking about? Himself. There's a preview, again, of coming attractions. We see this often happening in Revelation where something is mentioned at the beginning. It's also mentioned at the end. Revelation 22, verse 16. Jesus' words, he says, Listen, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What does Jesus promise to everyone who holds fast to him? himself, himself. Dear friend, a lot of this encouragement to persevere, to overcome in love for the gospel in love for Jesus' church and, and supreme love for Christ himself, I tell you, hold fast to Jesus simply for the reward of receiving Jesus. Yeah. Common wisdom says, if you love something, let it go. And if it's meant to be, it will come back to you. Most of the time, this means, guys, don't be a clingy boyfriend. If you hold jealously onto your girlfriend, she's going to be turned off by it. You'll lose her entirely. So ease up a little bit. Give her some space. But contrast that word of common wisdom. If you love something, let it go. Contrast that with the invitation of Jesus here. He says, if you want me... And not just the stuff that I can give you, but if you want fellowship with me, if you want life with me, if you want shared authority and eternity with me, if you want forgiveness of sins by my death, if you want hope in me, if you want joy in me, if you want me and only me and all of me, then don't ever let me go. Hold fast To me, Jesus says, this is the, friends, the beautiful invitation of Jesus to sinners and saints alike. He will never turn away the one who wants him and more of him more than anything else in the world. Jesus will never say, turn loose of me a little bit. Come in my space. Jesus welcomes every broken sinner, every needy saint to hold fast to him. Because he knows that he is their greatest delight. That he is the fulfillment and and the filling of every longing in our hearts. And so to everyone who wants that of Jesus, he says, come to me. Come to me. Hold on to me and never let go. Friends, Christ has designed his church to do what it does best. To give witness to him in the world by staying tightly connected to him and not straying. He has designed us to do what we do best in giving witness to Him in the world by staying tightly connected to Him in what we believe. Doctrine matters. By holding tightly to Him in what we sing. The doctrine of our songs, the theology of our songs matters. By holding tightly to Him in what we say. The words that come from this pulpit Sunday to Sunday, and the words that come from your Bible study leaders and Grow Group leaders matters what we teach about christ matters it speaks to to his to our witness of him in the world we're meant to hold fast to him in what we teach and and especially friends in how we live tolerance of things that distract from christ is ultimately deadly to the mission of the church so jesus says beware permissive tolerance hold fast in love to me and i'll give you all of me in return. Let's pray.